entering the Freedom Hut. Trump buck slaps the Ayatollah. So missiles fired last night at U.S. bases. No U.S. casualties. And the president has a message uh, to Iran that we'll get into today. Also, a horrific jet crash as a plane was leaving Tehran. 176 dead. We'll have updates for you on that. The Department of Justice has gone for a longer sentence for General Flynn. And CNN has settled its lawsuit with Covington Catholic student Nick Sandman. That's coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great here, great America. Again, the Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst, former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now, as long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. It was... A bit harrowing last night as we had reports coming in of Iranian missile strikes on U.S. bases in Iraq. There were many who were immediately thinking about the possibility that we were going to suffer uh, perhaps a large number of U.S. casualties, that perhaps this was going to be just the start of a much larger escalation, perhaps attendance, terror attacks, follow-on strikes, that shutting down of the Strait of Hormuz that everyone's been so concerned about, and that we would be plunged headlong into war, right? That's something that everyone has at least had on their minds. But there's a bit of hysteria surrounding this that I want to dispel today. Uh, And the president this morning gave what should be viewed by anyone who's trying to see this honestly as a as a perfect response under the circumstances to what has gone on here. You have all these people who are so invested in Trump as an ignoramus, doesn't know anything, doesn't understand anything, and yet he keeps making decisions that they tell us are going to be disastrous. They, they warn us, oh, it will be disastrous if he does this thing. And then once he does it, there are all these people who are completely freaked out about what this will mean, all of the terrible calamities that will befall us because of Trump, the the evil bad man, the orange man who is bad. And then it turns out the warnings they were giving us were overheated. Then it becomes clear that what they've been saying to us is just not accurate. They're predictions of doom, which are meant to have an effect 
on the people who hear them. The effect is to make them believe that there is an even greater instability, that Trump is this reckless, clownish, dangerous buffoon in the Oval Office. And they keep reinforcing this belief with predictions, but the predictions are wrong. They're not true. Now, they can always extend the timeline, and that's what they'll do today. Oh, well, the Iranians will get us back at a time and place of their choosing. Okay. And if it's this president in office, I think we're all quite clear on the fact that Trump will respond in a way that will change their calculations if and when they decide to do more than this. I have to tell you, the the more troubling aspect of last night, I mean, the first and most important thing was the, the possibility of the United States uh, armed forces losing men and women in uniform uh, because in this strike. Uh, the implications of that, and first just the loss of our people, then the implications for what that response would lead to. You had the Drudge Report saying uh, on its you know front page, its big banner, it's war. Um, no, this is not actually war. This is... A, a similar back and forth that we've been having with Iran actually for decades. I mean, let, let's not forget, you know, there was the tanker war with Iran. Let's not forget that we accidentally shot an Iranian airliner out of the sky at one point during uh, hostile, hostile circumstances with Iran. Um, there have been plenty of times where there has been elevated tension between our country and their country because the Iranians are, the Iranian regime is an evil, despotic theocracy that is the only, find me another country other than North Korea that is constantly talking about the need at the highest level, from the top of the government apparatus, the need to destroy an entire other country. And the implication is certainly, if not openly stated, to kill all of its inhabitants. The Iranian mullahs say that they want, to, they want death to America, they want death to Israel, they want to destroy Israel, kick them into the sea, drown them in a sea of fire, all of this stuff. Normal governments, reasonable people don't say these things, don't do these things. But we have gone through a period here where we've had successive administrations, Bush and Obama, who were unwilling to do what was necessary against the Iranian regime. I mean, I said it yesterday on Outnumbered and also here on this show, Trump doesn't like one-way wars. The people, the so-called experts and the foreign policy intelligentsia out there, all these different journalists who are doing live streams from Qasem Soleimani's hometown of his funeral, you're live streaming this? Why, 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 do, we, why do we particularly have to see this at all? That's a very clear editorial decision that is being made. It's hard not to think that there are some journalists who are, if not personally saddened by this Qasem Soleimani strike, view it as first and foremost an opportunity to bash this administration. Trump has done something that everyone who hates him claims proved just how reckless and dangerous and stupid he is. And now we see the immediate consequences of it, which they were telling us, they were projecting was going to be disastrous and terrible. And I saw one former Obama official last night, you know, Ben Rhodes and his little echo chamber of idiots. Oh, you know, this didn't have to happen. This is Trump's fault. 
okay. They fired a bunch of missiles at bases. I got news for you. I've been in Iraq a couple times. Missiles get fired and uh, different indirect fire, IDF, comes into these Iraqi bases, has been for years. I'm not saying it's not a hostile act and that it should not be taken incredibly seriously and that we shouldn't just let the Iranians do this. It's a different thing for them to fire these missiles from their own territory. But they acted to show that they can act. But this is, if you're looking at it from what it means from their perspective now and and how we are staring at each other other across this battlefield, so to speak, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to do something. We're going to show you we could do more. But we're not going to cross a red line here. We're not going to do something that must be met with a crushing and overwhelming American response. Right? They're not going to do that. Okay. Well, why is that the case? After all these little little different uh, provocations, you know, bringing down our drone, grabbing our sailors under the under the Obama administration, attacking tankers in the Strait of Hormuz, or you know, sabotaging them. Um, you see all these things here, and and then you add into this, of course, their efforts in Iraq to undermine us, including the killing of U.S. soldiers at different points during hostilities there, but also this storming of the embassy moment. Trump just drew a line in the sand. And this is what many of us have been saying all along here. When Trump draws a line in the sand, our enemies take it seriously. And by killing Qasem Soleimani, who was considered by so many a guy you can't touch, he was invincible. He was invincible because we decided, or the people who had been making decisions for a long time, had come to think that it was just too much of a, of a provocation, with, provocation with Iran. It's too much of an Iranian provocation if their feeling is that they could do something truly egregious, that they could go after our people and kill a lot of our people in response to killing Qasem Soleimani, and then we would say to them, well, hold on a second. Let's not get crazy. Let's de-escalate this in some way. And then we would say that this is a circumstance that we have to find a way to, we'll take the L, so to speak. We'll take the loss on this one. I mean, this is one of the, the strongest decisions. And I, look, I, I've, I come here, sitting down here, what would I have to say if the Iranians had launched some kind of a strike and, God forbid, had you know, killed scores of American servicemen somewhere, had blown up a couple of oil tankers, and you know, we had a geological or a, a ecological, rather, not geological, ecological catastrophe in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, you had a mass casualty incident with U.S. soldiers. You had terrorist, uh, terrorist proxies engaging in mass casualty attacks against us and our interests and our allies around the world, all in the say-so of Iran, I'd have to say, okay, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it is going to be war now because of Qasem Soleimani, but the Iranians haven't done that. Why haven't they done that? Now, they could, you can always say they'll escalate at some point in the future, but then you never get to make any worthwhile decisions because you're not looking at what they're really doing in response to U.S. action. Trump has showed them. He's the guy who's willing to do what the two presidents before him were not, to take riskier, more dramatic action as commander-in-chief against the Iranian regime. And he's the one that we think the Iranians are going to try to test now? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, 
There are reasons, by the way, that have gotten overlooked for why the Bush administration, I keep bringing up the Bush administration, obviously they weren't gun shy, so to speak, Afghanistan, Iraq, but where, where was this sense of invincibility from the Bush administration coming from? Well, in the second part of Bush's term, really, or the end of the first term and into the second term, Iraq was so destabilized, and it was in the midst of what was effectively an, a Shia-Sunni ethnic cleansing, and there was such concern over the civil war growing much larger and more intense that they just didn't think they, they had the bandwidth. They didn't think they could, they could handle truly going after Iranian interests in Iraq. There was always this sense of, okay, well, we don't want to kick the hornet's nest too much there. We got to worry too much about al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI. We have to worry about dealing with the surge and, and the, uh, the different indigenous forces that were assisting U.S. military in fighting against al-Qaeda in Iraq all of that, right? That was, the, and so they, they didn't go after Iranian interest in Iraq because they felt like they couldn't take that on. And then the Obama administration came along and they just sort of took that momentum of, all right, we're not going to trust the Iranians. They'll come back and say, oh, okay, um, well, we are trying to buy off the Iranians. We're going to give them money. We're going to do whatever we have to do to make the Iranians happy. So with that in play, um, the Obama administration got this joint comprehensive plan of action that JCPOA signed, uh, which was far too favorable for Iran because the, the, you know, the, the fundamental problem of the Obama foreign policy approach, if we're going to start to look at something that is, a tr that is the Trump doctrine, right, and everyone's going to be talking about this now, they're going to come up with their versions of it, but I, I haven't actually, there isn't really much of a, a distillation of the Trump doctrine other than who are our friends, who are our enemies, how do we treat them differently? Why does it matter to be one or the other? And do we use the leverage and the power and the force that we have when necessary for our own interests? The Obama administration approach, and people like John Kerry, a deeply unimpressive intellect, by the way. I mean, John Kerry's not a particularly bright guy. He's just a guy who's maneuvered however he has to to build some political career based on, you know, J John Kerry has said something really intelligent when. Just give, give me one time where you're like, wow, John Kerry really nailed that issue. He really understands it. Um, so he and the other members of the Obama team that were negotiating this with Iran, they approached the nuclear agreement from the perspective of the Iranians and America are really, you know, s s similar in terms of their, uh, the Iranian regime in America, similar in terms of the merit of these countries, the worth of these countries. You know, we, we don't want to anger them too much because they can make things really ugly for us. Trump comes in and says, OK, yeah, they can make things ugly for us. We can make things disappear for them. That's a very different thing. And this is why you keep hearing people who say, oh, no, but the Iranians will get us in the future and they have a very long memory. And look at Salman Rushdie, the satanic verses. They still have a bounty on a novelist's head, my friends, from the top of the Iranian regime. This is not a normal country. This is not a normal government. We're not just bullying some country. You know, we're not threatening to invade uh, Finland tomorrow. They should be treated differently. They should be ostracized. Additional sanctions were announced this morning. That's the right way to go. But here's the, the fundamental takeaway. So far, Trump's gamble was correct. He's right because he is elevating the perception of 
what it is that our enemies have to be worried about when it comes to our response, instead of us always worrying about their response. He has put the onus now on them. Oh, they want to play rough? We can play rougher. Now, this is, people say, oh, that's chest thumping, there's tough guy talk, people don't understand anymore. No, 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 no. The chest thumping is happening with all the people who claim Trump is an idiot, he's leading us right into war. No, no, he's not leading us right into war. You know, yeah, the, the Iranians could declare war on us tomorrow. I mean, we're always having to, at some level, react to the insanity of the mullahs. But we don't think that's going to happen. Why? Don't forget this. If Iran could raise Tel Aviv to the ground tomorrow and get away with it, they would. If Iran could engage in a mass casualty attack on U.S. soil against us and get away with it, the mullahs would. The reason they don't do that is not because they're so rational and reasonable and decent and fair. It's because they know that we hold the power to annihilate them in response. Trump has reminded the mullahs to take that power seriously now. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, I mean, let's just get into some of this, some of the examples of the very uh, the chest thumping stupidity that I'm talking about here. Lawrence O'Donnell tweeting out, you know, big multimillionaire MSNBC anchor, you know, supposed to be a smart guy. I don't know why people think that he knows anything about anything in foreign policy, but this is what they're saying. Trump wagged the dog. Now the dog is wagging Trump. That was last night, folks. 8.24 p.m. That was right when we're, we're finding out about, did we just lose 10, 20, 50 U.S. soldiers in strikes? And we didn't know at the time. What, how big were those missiles? What were those missiles? Now we have early warning. These bases are hardened. They were expecting some kind of a response. Trump wagged the dog. Now the dog is wagging Trump. I mean, you, you look at the, the way that the journos have been responding to this. Um, you know, you look at the way that they are talking about this issue continuously. And it's quite clear that we could ask for uh, we, we could reasonably ask the question, whose side are they on here? And, and this goes a bit deeper. This really shouldn't just be a rhetorical question anymore, because I think that they'd be willing to have America get hurt if Trump's presidency got hurt, too. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. He trained terrorist armies, including Hezbollah, launching terrorist strikes against civilian targets. He fueled bloody civil wars all across the region. He viciously wounded and murdered thousands of U.S. troops, including the planting of roadside bombs that maim and dismember their victims. Soleimani directed the recent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq that badly wounded four service members and killed one American and he orchestrated the violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. In recent days, he was planning new attacks on American targets, but we stopped him. Soleimani's hands were drenched in both American and Iranian blood. He should have been terminated long ago. 
By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. If there's a Trump doctrine, that's it. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. Very straightforward statement. No, no, this isn't something that you would hear in the faculty lounge at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies or Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, SIPA, SICE, Georgetown Security Studies Program, one of the most advanced in the country, MIT Security Studies Program, all these different IR schools. You won't hear professors, you won't hear the former administration officials from, you know, different presidencies who get cushy teaching positions at these places saying that that's what the Trump doctrine is. But I'm here to tell you, that is what the Trump doctrine is. It's very straightforward. Because you see, Trump doesn't bring to these issues all the baggage, all the difficulties with seeing what is so clear and obvious to the rest of us that people who have either been conditioned to blame America first or conditioned to think that there is some inherent virtue in seeing everything through the eyes of our enemies first, meaning seeing their side of it, like, well, what, you know, why have they become so upset at us? Maybe we did something wrong. It's, really, I guess, an extension of blame America first. Now, Trump says, if you value the lives of your, people, of your people, you will not take our people's lives. What was the red line here? We go back to basics. And this is why so many people who see this president in office and say it, it does not matter that, I mean, he did go to a super fancy school, but who cares, right? But it doesn't matter that he wasn't someone who's been through this system. Normal people faced with what Iran's government is and has done and what the United States is and has done understand that we are the good guys and that government is, in fact, the bad guys and we should act accordingly. No, the Obama administration was a lot of, you know, well, yeah, but how do we get them to be nicer to us? And let's let diplomacy do this, that, and the other thing. Why? What, why? And they did this with Cuba, too, by the way. What did Cuba do to change its, its policies in any meaningful way to get this thong of relations from the Obama administration? Nothing. Nothing. Cuba, which has just, after inflicting communist, collectivist, socialist misery on its own people, turning it, turning what should be a beautiful and prosperous island that all of us can't wait to go and visit and hang out in because it's wonderful. And, you know, Cuba does have great music, you know, food, people, and everything. No, no. Cuba's a miserable hellhole for most people. And, of course, not those tied to the regime, but most people who live there because of the people in charge. And they've been exporting that misery throughout Latin America. Yeah, we've ruined this country. Let's find ways to help you ruin your country with communism. Healthcare for all, though, right? That's a, you start to look, yeah, man, Bernie Sanders, he could be the mayor of Havana tomorrow. But bring this back to where Trump is and where the journos are and what they've been saying about this. Here's Richard Engel, who's a fellow, very celebrated on the left, a very serious international affairs journalist. You know, all these people, you know, please... We've had, I don't, even, I don't even know the number offhand, but I know we've had over, I think it's over 2 million people cycle through the wars of our soldiers, our you know, airmen, seamen, military, everybody, through the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
okay? Combatants, people who show up in a war zone, whether they're kicking in doors or they're handling logistics or flying you know, helicopters, whatever they're doing, people who are in a war zone as combatants for this country. We got a few million of them. I really don't need to hear from like the the war zone correspondent journalists all the time, but how, oh, it's, you know, it's so dangerous. What we do is so dangerous. Yeah, there's some danger. I've taken the same degree of danger. I'm walking around all the time. Oh, it's so brave. Who cares? People live in these countries. You know, journalists go for two days. They'll go to the green zone. Oh, I, I've, I've been to Iraq, sir. Yeah, well, you know, do a 14-month deployment as we have seen so many in our military do and actually take incoming and have to return fire. And, and then you can talk about being, being so brave, journos. But uh, Richard Engels is NBC correspondent, and he, this is what he, you know, remember last night, it's, there was a little bit, you could just see it on Twitter, a little bit. This is where you have Lawrence O'Donnell, Trump wagged the dog, now the dog is wagging Trump. There's a little bit of ha-ha. We're trying to find out if we have dead Americans. We are waiting to hear whether there are going to be flag-draped coffins and families shattered in our own country as a result of strike. We don't know. Initial reports, and there are Democrats and journalists who their first impulse is, see, we were right, and they're hoping to be right, which means they're hoping that there are casualties here, folks. How else can you view it? How else can you say it? This didn't have to happen. I saw one of the former Obama flax putting that out there. Um, Okay, yeah, what exactly happened? An anemic response from Iran, the weakest response that they could they could really give and still claim to have done anything after we killed, as I've been saying, Qasem Soleimani, the combination of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Elvis Presley, and Babe Ruth. Here's NBC, you know, correspondent Richard Engel. It's just he's there to explain the world to us. I swear to God, journalists and actors are the worst people in the world. I really mean, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Journalists and actors are the worst. Not everybody, obviously. I love some journalists and some actors. But oh, if you're looking at groups of people by profession, the worst people. Uh, Richard Engel, Iran reacted with what was a calibrated response. No U.S. dead, according to Iraqi officials. Iran did it in part to restore Iran's honor after losing its general. Will Trump taunt and humiliate Iran? Won't go over well. Oh, okay. Here you have an NBC News foreign chief foreign correspondent taking a very positive tone toward Iran was just trying to restore the honor that it lost as a result of its general being taken. Now, this guy is a, a terrorist, bloody-minded loon. And we take him out, you know, the administration has been saying, and I believe them, I take them at their word that this guy was planning. He just, we just had the attack on the embassy. They didn't bring this out of nowhere. These are planning more attacks on us. And notice how, you know, if you're working at NBC News, you got to say, well, hold on, I mean, Iran, great statesmanship from Iran here by firing missiles from their territory into another country's sovereign territory at our bases could very well have killed people, by the way, even if that was not the intention. But notice how he goes, will Trump taunt and humiliate Iran? Won't go over well. No, what Trump did this morning is give a very statesmanlike speech about the reality of things right now between the United States and Iran, saying that we, we don't want war. 
but Iran's behavior, enough is enough. Not going to tolerate it anymore. Uh, th- this shouldn't be so complicated, so hard for the journalists to understand. But you see, there's another, there's another level here. And that is, there are many who are cheerleaders for Obama's policy in Iran. And now we're saying, hold on a second. You mean we don't have to... We don't have to bend the knee to the mullahs. We don't have to pay them off with cash. We don't have to do all these things in the hopes that the Iranians will like us more. Now, there's an, there was another way? You don't say. Washington Post put this out. Are you a journalist first or an American first? With conflict looming, an old question about patriotism is raised anew. Unless you're a lib journo, unless you're a leftist journalist. Notice that we don't use the term progressive as much anymore. We've gone back to other things. Then you might have a, a question here. But for any normal American, the answer is, I'm an American first. This country matters more than my theoretical professional obligations. Journalists don't all think so, though. I'll never forget being in Beijing and watching CNN International because it was the only English language channel I could get. And I had no outside internet. I had no, you know, contact with the rest of the world. I will never forget being there and watching CNN International and thinking that if Xi Jinping was directing English language coverage of what was going on in the world for a Chinese audience to make America look bad, he couldn't do better than what CNN was making America under Trump look like. Couldn't, couldn't have done a better job. It's shameful. It really is. It's a disgrace. It's harmful. It's not just a question of I don't like their ideas. I think that there are consequences for the propaganda that some of these uh, organizations churn out. The dishonesty, not just of their information, but the dishonesty of what their mission is. I find that uh, deeply disturbing. Are you a journalist first or an American first? My friends, one thing I can tell you is those of you who listen to the show, who watch this show, um, you will never have to ask the question that the Washington Post has posed about what we do here. This country matters more than any show, any ethical obligations to your professional life, right? Your first ethical obligation is to your country. At least when it comes to country versus profession, it should be quite obvious. But for lib journals, it is not particularly obvious. Oh, yes, they were doing live streaming coverage of, of Qasem Soleimani buried in his hometown. They They were really trying to turn this into a moment of sea change against Trump. You could tell there was some glee at the prospect of Trump getting drawn into a quagmire, a war. Libs, they were enthusiastic about this. They liked this for what it would mean politically. You can't avoid that from seeing the way that they reacted last night. I sat there. I didn't tweet anything during the attack. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking shots at people because I want to know while our people were taking real shots downrange. What happened? First, first concern, are our people okay? Second concern, what are we going to do in immediate response to this? How big is that response going to be? Very far down the list for anybody who's normal would be, oh, does this make me look right? Does this help my political tribe? The libs were shameful last night in that regard. It was appalling, but not surprising. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Today, 
I am going to ask NATO to become much more involved in the Middle East process. Over the last three years, under my leadership, our economy is stronger than ever before, and America has achieved energy independence. These historic accomplishments change our strategic priorities. These are accomplishments that nobody thought were possible. And options in the Middle East became available. We are now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. We are independent, and we do not need Middle East oil. The American military has been completely rebuilt under my administration at a cost of $2.5 trillion. U.S. armed forces are stronger than ever before. Our missiles are big, powerful, accurate, lethal, and fast. Under construction are many hypersonic missiles. The fact that we have this great military and equipment, however, does not mean we have to use it. We do not want to use it. American strength, both military and economic, is the best deterrent. Just go back and look at Nancy Pelosi's Twitter feed, for example, yesterday, and you'll see that the biggest concern Democrats have is not really about what this means for national security of the United States. It's how does this look for them? What does this mean? How is this going to move the polls? How is this going to affect the prospects of a Democrat victory in 2020? Um, you have uh, so many people that were saying that this is such a bad idea. I, I, will, I like to give credit where it's due. By the way, did I tell you this was terrible? No. What did I say? I said that this was the right move and that I think the Iranian response wasn't going to be nearly as terrifying as everybody was saying it was. I was right. They were wrong. But it's because I approach this by trying to figure out what's really going to happen. They approach this from what does my the, the lib journos approach this from this perspective. What does my brainwashed, hysterically anti-Trump audience want to hear in this moment? I, they will tell them that thing. And then even if it's completely untrue, it does not matter because it served its purpose at the time. Here's uh, Rachel Maddow talking about Trump's decision-making with regard to Iran. Play 18. Does anybody ever brief these advisors on Donald Trump? Yeah. Because if you offer him a bunch of kind of normal ideas and one cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs idea, yeah. there's no reason to believe that cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs will seem at all different or less palatable to him. Of course. Yeah, he's just got crazy ideas. Ha, ha, ha. So crazy. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem, crazy. There's going to be a huge uprising. Uh, the, the, the genocide against the Kurds, all those people say, oh, they're, 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 the Kurds were being wiped. Yeah, they, the, the Turks and the Kurds have been killing each other for 30 years, you idiots. Yeah, there was like a bad day or two because we moved some troops. It's the Middle East. These things happen. Regrettable, but the, the, the claim was that there was going to be a genocide. That means everybody's getting killed. That means wiping out a people in Syria. That's not what happened. The trade war is going to be disastrous. Now they're all saying, oh, no one said it was going to be disastrous. Just so there'd be trade-offs. No, people were saying, oh, my gosh, this trade war, such a bad, terrible idea, terrible things going to happen. Yeah. Our economy is booming. China's economy is going down the toilet. So who is right? Who is wrong about that? I have to wonder at some point, do any of these people who 
their job and their profession is supposed to be presenting information. And for those that are analysts or pundits, they're supposed to like make good assessments. They never step back and say, uh, I was wrong. They never, you just don't ever hear them do it. To be anti-Trump is to never have to admit that he has been so much more effective and so much better as president than the so-called smart folks said. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, I don't want to divert us to get too far into the conversation about the failure of our school system in this country, <laughs> public school system. But just if we can take a breather, this was amazing. There's a, there's a poll circulating right now from the morning consult. Uh, they did a, a, a test with people, you know, of just uh, Americans, just a uh, sample size of Americans. Producer Mark, I got to ask you, I got to ask you a question here, okay? What, because I, I didn't bring this, I didn't send you this one in the rundown note. What percentage of Americans shown a map of the world can find Iran on a map? Oh, it's got to be like 40-ish percent. <laughs> Is that too a high? Fair, a, fair, a fair guess. 23 percent. Wow. Less than one in four. Three out of four people cannot find Iran on a map. Now, now hold on a second. Now, people are going to say, all right, let's not be too, you know, geography is not everybody's thing. Whatever. Here's the problem. I don't have a specific number for this. But they, they, they showed where people, you know, they let them sort of put a pin, a virtual pin on where they thought Iran was. <laughs> and a large, this is where I've got a real problem. It's actually not, you can't find Iran. People are used to seeing maps with the names on them. It can be a little, you know, how, how many journos could find Poland on a map if it was just a map of the world with no names on it? I'd, I'd say not very many. You know, not many, you no. start, if you start to be honest about this, like all of us get used to seeing maps with the names on them, and then we find things if it's just a blank map, but... Here's where I draw the line. A lot of people in this test thought that Iran was in America. <laughs> oh, my God. Which is the best. That's my favorite. Like, if you're, I don't care who you are. You don't have to care about foreign relations. You have to be super educated, whatever. You do, however, have to know where the country is that you live in on a map. And you have to know that Iran is not, in fact, in that that ge- geographic space. How many people do you think can get all 50 states where they are? Look, I don't I'm, think I could. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I think I'd get there, but it wouldn't, you know, you start looking at like, I mean, what's really the difference between the some of those states in the middle, Dakotas yeah. and Montana? You start to look at some of those states, you know, all of a sudden Nevada starts to feel a little bit more like Utah starts, you know, it can, and ever we're also high, highfalutin, also fancy about our geography, but. I do draw the line. You have to know. You should at least know Iran is in the Middle East. Yeah, you have to. We have to know that Iran is not in America. That you do have yes. to know. That is that is an expectation that I think. So you know they always do these things like how many Americans to name the vice president, or whatever. And I say to that, you know, I mean you should know that obviously, but does it really matter? Probably not. But you got to know Iran's not in America. That's that's a thing that is that's a thing that is uh, that is real. Um, speaking of things that are real and things that are fake. Um, I thought that this was a very, a very interesting, um, very interesting moment. There was a a letter that was circulated, and the journalists were all just saying, "Oh, we have this letter about how the U.S. is pulling out of Iraq." It turned out the letter was a draft, and it was never meant to be released. 
but the journos went with it uh, went with it anyway. I, I just want to know, yeah, it seems like there was a mistake made by the Pentagon, or the Defense Department, or this, this letter never should have seen the light of, of day. But journalists are supposed to be able to determine what's, you know, they're, they're supposed to tell us what's real and what's not. You know, they're not supposed to just put, they're not supposed to dossier things. Remember the Steele dossier? Probably Steele is now like doing events. And now that Chris Steele has no longer, no longer has any real use because his dossier is crap and all the actual DOJ reporting that's out there from the inspector general and elsewhere, you know, the Christopher Steele dossier is garbage. We know that now. Now he gets to just sort of be a celebrity to the left because he did, he did what he needed to do for them. He served his purpose. This is one of the major advantages that Democrats and leftists and socialists have over uh, us conservatives here in America, is that if you if you take one for the team on the left, if you are of use to them and you are a good little uh, little leftist functionary, there are book deals and contributorships and speaking gigs and all the all the greatest stuff you could get. You know, all they they take care of their own. On our side, it's always well, you know. Not a lot of places for conservatives, so, you know, maybe you could open a small business or something. You know, they, they, it's like you're on your own. I mean, nobody really goes out of their way to help you. And it's, I'm telling you, it's not a minor thing. It really does matter. You know, there's a reason why when, not to compare everybody to the mafia here, but there's a reason why, you know, the mafia would always approach, you know, would try to take care of your family if you went to prison. It's to buy your silence when you're in prison, and that and that becomes the expectation. You know, you don't you don't blab. Of course, people do blab, but you know, it's supposed to be you don't blab, and we'll take care of your family. Um, in this case, you know, the left kind of has its its omerta, isn't that what producer Mark right? The uh, the oath of allegiance to uh, the Cosa Nostra, right? Yeah, I know these things. I used to I used to watch that. I, I have actually somebody who has a. I always find it a little bit annoying that uh, there are so many of these movies about mobsters where you're supposed to be sympathetic to the mobsters. This is a big problem I have. You know, the, the, the mobsters will do bad things, but they'll never do something that's or the one that you're supposed to like, the one you're supposed to root for. Never does the thing that's so bad, really, that you just you can't root for them really anymore. And real life mobsters do the really bad things, actually. Like the show uh, was a Bad Blood that you recommended on Netflix. I ended up watching that, and you want to root for the guys, but they're terrible people. They're terrible people. Yeah, yeah. No, no. The first season of that was pretty watchable. I thought. Yes. The second well, season. I learned that the second season deviates from the true story. Correct. They go out on their own. They just make up. They make it up as they go. Yeah. The first season was based on what actually happened yes. in Montreal. I was just shocked that like Montreal even had mobsters where they weren't just like, hey, like we'll have a snowball fight, eh? You know, like <laughs> I thought that apparently there's like real like mobster yeah. mobsters there. The Rizzuto family, in fact. I'll just say this: the first season that was pretty good. The second season wasn't, but but you know you see this also in. You know, I'm watching even the Americans, which is a very good show. You know, there are a few things where like real KGB operatives would have uh, would have done the very bad thing, and they end up not doing the very bad thing because obviously then you can't look. I get it; you got to suspend disbelief and whatever. But with mobsters, it's always like they have this code, and you know they don't. No, like the mobsters go in and like break the guy's fingers in front of his wife because he won't pay the protection money, and like that's what they all did. They're not good people. So I I, I break with a lot of people. I'm like, yeah, I love all these Scorsese movies. I'm like, no. It's a very talk to talk to Giuliani as I have about the mobsters that he used to prosecute. Mm. These are guys are very bad things. I mean, they're good movies. No, they're entertaining movies, but yeah, I just think that they're they always, terrible people. Yeah. They're terrible people, yeah. and they always do this thing. You know, Tony Soprano, for example. You know, he's kind of a good guy. He's like an antihero, but like he's he's a bad guy, but he's kind of a good guy. It's like no, they're really just bad guys. Yes.
This is where, this is where I, I know. No one wants to hear this because everyone loves their, like, honorable bad guy movies. You know, the honorable mobster that breaks the law but isn't a terrible guy. They're usually terrible. They're ter- only slightly good people for entertainment value. What? Well, no, they're slightly good people for entertainment value because if, if they weren't slightly good people, then you couldn't. You couldn't want anything good. You know, you couldn't root for them anymore. Yes. Then why are you watching this? Exactly. Then you want the FBI to come in through the front door and, you know, take him out um, to the prison cell, obviously. Uh, I'm sorry. I got I got distracted here from what, what I was going to go to, which is now the um, how the, the Democrats, they said all these things. And now we should assess what they said because they were wrong. All right. I talked to you before about how John uh, John Kerry was not a very impressive person. And uh, here is John Kerry being unimpressive. Play clip four, please. And now we're seeing the repercussions of going back to where we were when we began the process of trying to eliminate a nuclear weapon. I think it's a tragedy for the world uh, that instead of diplomacy, this administration has rushed to confrontation. And if this develops into a tit for tat, increased effort, it will become a war that is needless, it didn't have to happen, and it will be a reckless uh, war of choice uh, by the President of the United States. Thanks for all that, John Kerry. Meanwhile, the President has ratcheted up what it means to confront America. The Obama administration kept making it seem easier and easier. Remember, red line in Syria didn't enforce it. Didn't force it. Shut down an operation against Hezbollah drug running because it might have upset the mullahs. The entire foreign policy of the United States in the Middle East became dominated during the Obama administration, became dominated by a desire to get a deal so that the Democrats could look like they have something to show for eight years of their control over our foreign policy. You know, remember, we hear so much about how Trump did something for, oh, in Ukraine. But whatever happened to the whole, you know, oh, the, I, I, I'm confused. Wasn't Trump supposed to be such a threat to national security? They had to rush the articles of impeachment through because he was going to cheat in the election. And we had to know about this right away. And it was all such a, such an urgent thing. And now all of a sudden there's just so much, so much quiet about that. Isn't that so weird? <clears throat> Almost like they were just being deeply cynical the whole time. And it had nothing to do with. With anything, really. Huh. Well, it had a lot to do with the Democrats getting what they need for themselves, trying to achieve power. Uh, They complained constantly then about how Trump was doing something for his own personal benefit. And that was the big, oh, personal benefit in Ukraine. It was very specifically for the benefit of the Obama administration and really for Obama's legacy. And by the way, I think that personal benefit stuff is crap in the way that they're using it. But the Obama administration, I mean, Obama was trying to do trying to buy, buy, I mean, with cash, like actually buy a foreign policy legacy for his administration in the Middle East and therefore in foreign policy in general. Um, and yeah, failed. Or at least is beginning to fail. And that's what's part of the reason that the libs are so upset about this whole thing. It's because they understand that it's more than just, it's more than just uh, a problem of Trump here for them. Um, it's also the problem of how does this look for Obama? The, 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 the foundational concept of Obama's approach to Iran and on foreign policy more broadly, but on Iran was we have to do something. We have to get a deal with them because deterrence and punishment will not work with Iran. 
What happens if they took that approach and now we see with Trump, hold on a second, deterrence, as in if you kill our people, we're going to kill you, deterrence can work. So was it a good idea to give them all that money and all that economic reintegration into the, into the global economy, the global financial system? Was that a good idea? Oh, there's a risk here. There's a risk here, not just for Obama's legacy, but for the future political prospects of the Democratic Party. That's also something you have to remember, right? 2020 now looms large over all of the Democrat media coverage, over all of the lib journo narrative building out there. Trump understands that uh, too. Did we play 26 yet? I don't think we did. Let's play it, my friend. This is from his speech this morning. The United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. In recent months alone, Iran has seized ships in international waters, fired an unprovoked strike on Saudi Arabia, and shot down two U.S. drones. Iran's hostility substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013, and they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terror spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration. They hate it when Trump points all that out. What did we get exactly for all that money, all of that? Those were concessions. We made concessions to Iran. What was the concession the Iranians made? They keep everything they have, and then they open some of it to nuclear inspectors? Ooh, so painful. How could the Iranian regime ever concede to such difficult circumstances? This is the the truth, folks. The Obama administration was a team of deeply unserious thinkers on foreign policy and national security matters. That is just... The reality. They can try to spin it as many ways as they want. Ben Rhodes, for heaven's sakes, this guy was the, communi- the, the great communicator of Obama's national security strategy. This should uh, be a reminder that the journalists did not do their job in the last administration, unless their job was to carry water for Obama and all of his people, which then they certainly did. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't have a whole lot to give you here except just a, an update on this, this uh, Boeing plane that crashed Shortly after it took off um, from Tehran, uh, Tehran Airport, and it killed uh, all 176 people on board. There were a, a lot of 63 Canadians, 11 Ukrainians died in the crash. You had a, a newlywed couple that just got married in a I mean, terrible, terrible situation. Um, 
it just it just went down and you have uh i believe there's been a suspension of all flights from ukraine to tehran right now uh this is a boeing 737-800 as you know the Boeing is under a lot of pressure these days because of the problems with the 737 MAX, where there were two crashes back in March that killed 346 people. But uh, this is the predecessor plane to the 737 MAX. So it, it's not a 737 MAX problem, obviously, because it's not the plane. Um, the Ukrainian embassy uh, replaced a previous statement saying terrorism or rocket attacks have been ruled out as a cause of the flight crash. Quote, information on the causes of the plane crash is being clarified by the commission, the Ukrainian embassy said. So they pulled back an initial statement on that. Look, it is, this is where you, you got to look at this and say it's it's possible that this was a, a tragic coincidence. The same night you got all these missiles being fired from Iran into Iraq. You have a plane right after takeoff uh, destroyed. I mean, it crashed, destroyed. I think there are also some early reports of uh, initial double engine failure. But even if there was a double engine failure, usually a plane has enough has enough uh, lift and momentum to try and ride it out on its wings and have a it's a crash landing, but at least it's not just falling out of the sky like a stone. And then, of course, then the plane just blows up effectively. Um, but uh, this is clearly going to get a lot of people's attention. And it's a shit. I mean, a large loss of life here. They have the black box recorder. A lot of conspiracies out there about what this was, what happened here. It, it, it seems highly, I just say it seems highly suspicious to me. It should seem highly suspicious to anyone that the night of all the missile missiles getting fired from Iran, you have a plane that everyone on board is killed. And it's just the charred wreckage of it is uh, there are photos of it um, near the Iranian airport. This just happened. It just happened. I, you know, it's very airline disasters are increasingly rare. Um, We know that there was, for example, that Malaysian Airlines flight that was blown out of the sky over Ukraine by a Russian provided Russian backed uh, militia, uh, Russian provided missile system that the Russian backed militia used in eastern Ukraine shot it. When there's audio of it, too, they shot it out of the sky. We don't know what happened here. But it's highly suspicious until we do know. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It'd be hard to believe that Donald Trump would launch attacks into Iran without speaking first to Vladimir Putin, considering that he's deferred to the Russian president uh, on Syria. He's deferred to the Russian president on removing troops from that area. He's deferred to the Russian president on Ukraine. He's deferred to the Russian president uh, on on most uh, geopolitical uh, questions. Never wrong. That's That's the great part about being on MSNBC. You never have to admit you're wrong or that you're an idiot. Oh, yeah, because everything is Putin's bidding. I mean, these people, the the uh, the newfound Russianists of our of our media, I'm telling you, all you really have to know with so many of these people is have they personally benefited from the Trump administration professionally? Have, have they have they benefited personally in their professional role because of Trump or not? Many of them are spiteful toward Trump because they feel like like Joe Scarborough, spiteful toward Trump. 
And that that then infects everything they say, all their analysis, all the presentation of facts. The job that they're supposed to do is secondary to um, orange man bad because I'm not benefiting from orange man. And that's what you see from from Scarborough. You see that with uh, with many, many other people these days who well, all along, actually, in the, in the uh, administration, this has been the case. You have all these people who just refuse to try and present things the way that they should if they weren't doing it for their own personal purposes. But I have a little update for you on something. You remember back when Covington Catholic students were uh, presented as being aggressive racists? And we have to remember, why was that? Why was that so compelling a story for the media? Because they believe, I think, and I don't know how much of it is they pander to their audiences because they know their idiot liberal audiences believe this stuff. But, you know, they just really believe that the, the, the bad guys, the people you always want to attack whenever you can, if you're in a mainstream media, news media organization, with obviously the exception of Fox News and a few other places, but if you're in a... If you're in a liberal media organization, which is really everything these days other than Fox News in the news sense, yes, I know One America and Newsmax, there are a couple others, but their audiences, I mean, more people listen to this show than watch either of those channels every day. So, um, but they're, they, they take any opportunity they can to attack white males who support Trump. I mean, that's, if you're a white male Trump supporter, you are not just fair game, you are an irresistible target for the media's ire. They do not like you. They want to make you look bad. They want to be harmful to you if they can, because they think that that's just, that's how their side, the libs, that's how they score points. And so that was why they without any, without doing any journalistic due diligence, without taking any moment of, wait, hold on a second, are we going to get this right? They jumped on the, oh, look at these, uh, look at these racist, privileged, white Trumps, because they were wearing, remember the kid was wearing a Make America Great Again hat. So there were some Trump supporters among this group from Covington Catholic, which is a, a prep school in Kentucky. These are high school kids, they're young kids. And they just ran with all these stories about them. And uh, Reza Aslan, who is uh, among the more odious people to have ever been employed by CNN, I mean, which is saying a lot. He was the one who very notoriously tweeted out, have you ever seen a more punchable face? You know, Reza Aslan is a is a disgusting human being, by the way. Uh, have you ever seen a more punchable face? And there are others like this. You know, he's also on the call the president a piece of blank, you know, publicly. That's who CNN gives shows to, by the way. They, CNN had a, he had his own show at CNN on their air. That's who they hired. They just make no mistake about it. I mean, look, look at the people that CNN likes to elevate. You know, Reza Aslan, Elliot Spitzer, a disgrace of a human being. Ugh. Elliot Spitzer is like only slightly less disgusting than like Anthony Weiner. I mean, Elliot Spitzer is gross gave him a show. I mean, this is who they give shows to over there. It's really, isn't it interesting when you look at it? And here you have uh, CNN having to finally pay up for its ideological, ideologically motivated malfeasance. 
CNN agreed Tuesday to settle a lawsuit with Covington Catholic student Nick Sandman. We don't know what the settlement uh, amount was. That's usually part of it in these things. Uh, Sandman sought $800 million from CNN, The Washington Post, and NBC Universal. Um, and we still don't know what's going to happen or what the outcome, I should say, is of the Washington Post and NBC Universal suits are. But CNN had to pay up that much for sure. This kid probably got, you know, well into the seven figures. I don't know, which he completely, totally deserves. Because CNN's very, very powerful. These media organizations have the ability to ruin people's lives, and they are reckless with it. CNN will show up and humiliate you on the front lawn of your own home if you're a private citizen who just wanted to, like, get people together to support Trump, but, you know, you you shared a, you know, a Russian-created meme on Facebook. Then you're a target. Ooh, because you're a Trump supporter. If you're a Trump supporter, it's fair game. You know, if you're a lib, especially if you're a lib who's like a minority or part of some protected class, whoa, 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 there, CNN's. Not only are they not going to say anything that's mean about you, they're going to go to the mat to protect you. And that's what their audience expects. If you're a private citizen who makes a, a meme that mocks CNN that they don't like, they'll dox you, they'll out you, and then they will threaten you unless you do what they say. Um, it's a bad organization with a lot of very bad people who work there and who run it. Not everybody, but the people calling the shots there, bad. Um, and I'm glad that they had to pay up here. Um, I, I, though, do not think that there will really be justice until essentially the entire senior leadership of CNN is fired and there's a complete revamp, I mean, a total redo of the uh, ethical and professional standards of that organization such that it tries, it really makes a good faith effort to be fair and be a news organization again, because that's not what it is at all. Um, they have to pay this money to uh, Nick Sandman. I remember when the initial stories broke on this one, and uh, I, I remember that I was like, this, something, it just seemed off to me. It just seemed off to me, the whole thing. That this was, it was just too perfect. You got this photo of this kid, a Trump hat, staring at this, oh, Native American activist. The guy's a loon, by the way. And then you get all these other members of the, the, you know, the black Hebrew Israelites or whatever they're called. And by the way, two of the two people associated with that group uh, killed a bunch of, of Jews in Jersey City recently in an anti-Semitic attack. I mean, so, you know, that's domestic terrorism. But, you know, you won't hear much about that from the media. But I have to note that you think about the major, the major national news stories that have been completely wrong, right? I mean, if I sit here and I, I, I try to tell you about national news stories that were just false premises, they, that the media had it totally wrong, and I ask you to rattle off the times that that's happened. And here, I'll, I'll just do this with you. Let, let's think of times when they just got it totally, they got Covington Catholic totally wrong. They got Jussie Smollett totally wrong. Uh, the Duke lacrosse case, Totally wrong. UVA rape story in Rolling Stone, you know, gang rape story. Totally wrong. You got everything they wrote about Kavanaugh, basically. Totally wrong. What is the... I mean, they would argue that. The other ones, that's just a matter of fact now. We all know that. And I'm sure some of you are yelling out as you're listening or watching this. You know, there's additional stories to that. They got these things on the facts, unquestionably, categorically, catastrophically wrong. What's the... What's the connective tissue between all of these things? 
there was a narrative that appealed to the liberal sensibility, a narrative that appealed to liberal sensibility about bad, conservative, white, privileged males. They see this, the libs see this, including, by the way, a lot of very privileged white liberal males will see this, right? They see this opportunity and they run with it. They can't, they, they can't be objective. It's almost like they can't help themselves. I don't know how much, I can't gauge how much of this is a compulsion versus just, you know, they, they are doing this cynically. They understand that they're probably going to be wrong about this. Do you, do you have any, any similar ability to look at the other side? You know, how many stories have been run, major national level news stories, that were very damaging to a liberal, to a, a left-wing, you know, protected, favored individual or group or class or whatever. And it turns out it was all false. I can think of none. I mean, if you offered me a lot of money, I'd sit here and I'd say, I, I, I wish I could collect, but I, I got nothing. And nothing. And we're supposed to believe that that's all, uh, that's all just good faith error. I, mean, I haven't even gotten to like Russia, Trump, collusion, all these other things. They just get wrong, wrong, wrong. They get it all wrong. They get it all wrong in the same direction. Why is that? Yeah, you could start telling me about confirmation bias, start telling me that uh, there's just the echo chamber effect. Those things are all real and true, and that's a part of it. But, you know, ultimately, we have an ideologically driven press that is engaged in a continuing and massive fraud. CNN being one of the worst examples of it, but there are many others. And so the fact that they have to write a big check here, or really I think probably their errors and omissions insurance, although I don't know how it'll work in this case if it was considered malicious, but you know, usually these organizations have essentially an insurance company that comes in when there's this uh, you know, defamation or this kind of thing, and they'll pay out. Um, but CNN deserves to get taken to the cleaners over this one. Um, and I, I'm happy that you know, young Sandman's uh, college education will be paid for. His first house will be paid for. His first couple of Maseratis will probably be paid for. Um, and he deserves it because, remember, they tried to ruin his life. They tried to ruin his life. I mean, he would have been branded forever as that racist white Trump supporter who was just being disrespectful to the honorable Native American activist who was just trying to you know, go for a nice walk in the park. No, it turns out that there were adults cursing at children and harassing them because they were wearing, uh, you know, MAGA hats and uh, the media couldn't help themselves to pick sides right away. They pick sides all the time. They pick sides. And it's always, and we always know what side they're going to pick. So absolutely no surprises there, my friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Speaker Pelosi is now sitting on the articles she claimed were so very urgent. She's delayed this indefinitely so that the architects of the failed House process can look for ways to reach over here into the Senate and dictate our process as well. Democrats have tried to insist that the Senate deviate from the unanimous bipartisan precedent set in the 1999 trial of President Clinton and write new rules for President Trump. They've tried to pre-commit the Senate to redoing House Democrats' slapdash work for them and pursuing avenues that Chairman Schiff himself didn't bother to pursue. How is the media, well, I shouldn't even, I was going to say, how is the media not pouncing on this more? But we know because they're just activists and they're, they're on Team Democrat. They're, team, they're leftists, they're socialists, and that's just who they are. It's what they believe, it's what they think. 
there's there's no there's no serious no serious person could say that what Pelosi's done here is is on the up and up is straightforward is ethical is honest no serious person believes these Democrats Schiff Pelosi the others that did this whole thing in the House and are now doing the whole oh we're not going to transmit this is just gamesmanship I mean they're just playing games with the process this is what Democrats do you see for for people who are who are honorable. There's an understanding that there will be differences of opinion that occur in a political process, in a legal process. And so the reason you have the rules that you have is to create some guardrails, some, some structure, some framework so that it doesn't, it doesn't just become, uh, you know, whoever, whoever wants, whoever has the votes, for example, gets to do absolutely anything that they want. Right. This is also why we have a separation of powers. Um, there have to be some understood processes in place or else nothing ever gets done, right? If, if one senator could just shut down the Senate, say, sorry, I don't like what's going on here, that would be a problem. So that's not part of the Senate rules. But for, you know, Democrats, for example, you, you could see them saying, well, you know, wh- why can't one senator just shut the whole thing down? Why can't they pack the Supreme Court if they don't like the number of judges? There's, there's no rule that they're not willing to change when it doesn't suit them. This is the maniacal childishness of the Democratic Party that is that is on display for us on a regular basis. Um, and, and I just I, I'm sorry, but I have not forgotten yet. Nancy Pelosi being prayerful. She was saddened, saddened that Trump was so, so terrible that he just forced her. She didn't want to do it, just forced her to impeach him. I mean, like. Who believes, who listens to this and doesn't say, wow, Nancy Pelosi, that's, that's rich. Come on, that's ridiculous. Who listens to this and doesn't think these people are such frauds? Frauds. I don't know. You, know, you, can't, even have a, you can't have a conversation with a rational Democrat these days because there are so, so few rational Democrats. You know, at least, at least Cocaine Mitch understands what he's up against, I think, with, all, with these, these left. Just play, uh, producer Mark, play clip two, please. House Democrats are treating impeachment like a political toy, like a political toy, treating their own effort to remove our commander in chief like some frivolous game. These bizarre stunts do not serve our Constitution or our national security. They erode both. My Democratic colleagues should not plow away American unity in some bizarre intramural competition to see who dislikes the president more. And that's really what this is. It's a show how much you hate Trump competition. That's what we have been offered up by these Democrats because they, they have to appeal to their base. Their base demands that there's an impeachment of Trump. Right? They demand that. There must be. doesn't matter what the reason is. When was the last time you even heard anything about quid pro quo and Ukraine or any of this? Well, all of a sudden, it's like not really that big a deal. Because the messaging campaign against Trump went from that to, oh, my gosh, he's leading us into World War III with Iran, and this is going to be so terrible. And then today, when you look at this, you come back and you say, hold on a second, what, what, exactly, what exactly has been the outcome? And we've been talking about this, obviously, for much of the show. The outcome is that Trump is, is winning on this issue and is showing how foolhardy it was when the previous administration decided to bow and scrape and plead and beg to get some kind of deal with the Iranians. 
Um, it's it's interesting to see how this will just continue to continue to play out without even without even a, a bit of introspection from the Democrats about the damage that they are doing to the country in the process. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This was predicted by climate scientists first in the early 80s. My own climate council has produced 12 reports warning the government and warning people of the escalating fire risk and danger in Australia. And sadly, until it hits, very little is done. Are you absolutely sure that this is climate change caused? Yes, I'm absolutely certain. The science is telling us this. It's telling us that these extreme heat conditions we've seen this year might occur naturally once every 350 years. But once you add the influence of the human-emitted greenhouse gases, we're likely to see those conditions once every eight years. And of course, that number will decline. It'll become more frequent as the build-up of gases continue. That is the... Most esteemed climate scientist of, uh, of Australia, Tim Flannery, uh, who is telling you that, uh, you know, of course, it's all climate change in Australia. They've had this horrible series of, of brush fires. And this is the problem I have, folks. The way they structure the discussion about climate change, it's, it's effectively unfalsifiable. Because, of course, the climate is a factor in this. Of course, the reality of dry tinder and of extreme heat conditions, uh, the climate affects this. Um, the other problem, though, is that Australia's had uh, bushfires, I can say brush fire, bushfire, same idea, but bushfires for a very long time. In fact, there was an excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal um, by somebody who's a, is an Australian, writes for the Australian Telegraph, uh, talking about how this is, again, grossly oversimplifying what's really going on. It's the same thing. It's just a mirror image of what we see in California, where they all want to, which, by the way, don't take too long of a shower there. But by the way, there is a, um, uh, you know, series of policy decisions that have been made in California that have also been mirror, um, mirrored in Australia that have made conditions worse for these kinds of fires. Uh, I just want to know why didn't uh, Christiane Amonpour, who's on television and has had quite a career because she has the most pretentious accent I've ever heard in my life. It's like she's not from the UK. She's from the entire world. Uh, why didn't she ask how climate change is responsible for the uh, dozens and dozens of uh, arrests of people who have set fires so that there will be worse brush fires. Australians are arresting people for these fires. The group that just looks at the cause of the fires, not that's like, because remember, this chief climatologist guy wants to be on TV, wants to ever, he gets to be the high priest of climatology in Australia right now. You know, he gets to be the big kangaroo. Gets to be the guy that determines what the conversation will be on this issue. And everyone can either applaud him because, I mean, CNN's audience, they, CNN's audience, if you did a poll, I'm telling you, 95% of them are big climate change believers. You know, they, oh, climate change, it's all so scary. 
which again, I, mean, I just don't think it's it's just not possible to be that smart and really think the world's going to end because of CO two emissions and you know and look at all the evidence and all the data that's been presented in the past and how wrong they are over and over again and think that somehow we're all supposed to believe them this time. It's just it's just not possible to be that smart and this to be the reality. I'm sorry, I don't know what else to say. I'm not trying to be uh, harsh about this. I'm not trying to harsh anyone's mellow. Uh, oh, here, here's the piece. I pulled it up in the uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the Australia Daily Telegraph editor is this guy, Morrow, and he writes, The current round of blazes started late last year. It's charred 15 million acres, killed more than two dozen Australians. The climate change narrative grossly oversimplifies bushfires whose causes are as complex as their recurrence is predictable. One... Australia is in the midst of one of its regular droughts. Uh, remember how I used to hear all the time about how we were going to, in this country, suffer worse hurricane seasons because of climate change? This was a big thing in like the 2000, earlier 2000s, maybe 2005, 2006, 2007. Oh, we're going to be hit, you know, because Hurricane Katrina, right? We're going to be hit with these horrible, worse hurricane seasons than ever before. And then it went through like a 10-year period where we didn't have, we didn't really have any catastrophic hurricanes on the scale that we had seen at other times in our history before CO2 emissions were such a scary thing. Um, now we have uh, people that are pretending that there are not, there's not a series of droughts that have been afflicting, or rather that cyclical droughts, not even series of droughts, cyclical droughts affect Australia. That's just the, the truth of what goes on there. He goes on, Byzantine environmental restrictions prevent landholders from clearing scrub, brush, and trees. State governments do, don't do their part to reduce the fuel load in parks. Last November, a former fire chief in Victoria slammed that state in Australia's minimalist approach to hazard reduction burning in the off-season. As for the proximate cause, anything from a lightning strike to a spark from a power tool to arson can touch off a conflagration. More than 180 people have been arrested for starting blazes since the current uh, start of the current brush, uh, bush, I keep getting this wrong, bushfire season. 180 people is a lot of people to be committing arson, right? That's, that's a, in this way. That's not a couple. That's a lot. You have to, I was getting to this the other day. I said, you know, what's the, the psychology, you know, and I had the, the, Michael Caine and Batman Begins, some people just want to watch the world burn. You know, that's this whole thing from the Batman Begins, you know. In Burma, he had this great big ruby the size of a tangerine. I I'm sorry, I like doing the Michael Caine accent. It's kind of fun. It's pretty good. To even producer Mark is chuckling a little bit over there. You know, it's pretty. He says mezzo mezzo, but I'm saying it's, it's pretty good. You know, it's like. You should be a billionaire dating supermodels and going out to galas. And he tells him Bruce Wayne the whole thing. I'll be buying this hotel and setting some new rules for the pool area. Can we get an American to play Batman, though? I mean, I you know, Christian Bale is okay, but can we get an American to play Batman again? You know? You know what I'm saying? They've got they've got 007. Can we get anyway? Um, 180 people that have set these fires. That's just who've been caught setting fires. Understand this. When you're looking at how many burglary arrests are made in an area, there's always more burglaries than burglary arrests. 
So if you got 180 people arrested for, and by the way, I think it's likely that a lot of them, a lot of people arrested for this, probably arrested for a reason. I'm not saying they're not innocent until proven guilty. I don't know how the Australian system works. But it, that means there's at least, you got to figure at least double that number. At least double that number are uh, have been human-caused, intentionally human-caused. Remember, this is separating out all the people that just, you know, they have a campfire in their backyard or something, and an ember goes and lands in the brush somewhere and starts a huge fire, right? I mean, that's, you know, which is... Unfortunate, but that's happening a lot more than anything else, I'm sure. Now, I was saying before about people just want to watch the world burn, and maybe that's you know, there's arson. Some people have this obsession with you know fire and flames and other, everything else. Um, but there is another possibility here. I'm not saying I have, I have no proof of this. This is a theory. I am theorizing. Look, the media has been theorizing about how we're going to war, war for days now, and they're totally wrong, and you know they're never going to say it. I'm just theorizing about the mentality of of the 180 people arrested at a time when, you know, Australians are dying, firefighters have died for trying to deal with these fires. You know, just people caught up in the in the conflagrations have died, uh, died, and uh, you know, a tremendous amount of animals. It's really sad. I mean, you see the video; it is really sad. You see these videos, koalas and kangaroos and other things, and they get caught in the flames and they get burned to death. Um, why would anybody set a fire? Well, what what if you thought that... I'm just... This is a theory. What if you thought that the world really was going to end unless we got a handle on CO2? And what, what if you felt like these bushfires, which we just had the chief climatologist of Australia tell us definitely climate change caused. Climate change is going to end the world unless we take dramatic action. Fires all over Australia are being blamed on climate change. If you were a climate change true believer, if you really thought that the entirety of the human species was at risk unless we took dramatic action to combat climate change, whatever that means. By the way, Australia is responsible for one, uh, about an 80th of the world's man-made carbon dioxide. Less than, uh, less than, what is it? No, you know, call it less than 2%, like 1.2% maybe or something like that. You know, that's, that's what Australia's responsible. Uh, that's what the Australian responsibility is. Um, this is where in this piece he says, activists insist that if the government had an effective climate policy, it would help snuff out the flames. Never mind that Australia emits around 177th of the world's, 177th, world's man-made carbon dioxide the country's complete deindustrialization wouldn't budge the global thermostat. In radical corners of Australian social media, activists play out fantasies of the government's dissolution and replacement with some sort of revolutionary people's climate assembly taking power. On Monday, a parliamentarian from the Australian Greens tweeted about one day holding climate trials to deal with conservative politicians in Australia. It's an elected official who's like, we're going to hold trials for these people because they didn't do more. As if, and remember, the Australia, if the Australian government said no more CO2, you can't do, which means, I mean, which actually means you can't breathe, by the way. What do we breathe in? What do we breathe out? Right? <laughs> this is what, this is the idiocy that we're dealing with here all the time. You're breathing in CO2, folks. Oh, you're a climate polluter. Your every breath is a climate polluting act. Oh, my. Um... And yet here we are now with people saying that there should be climate trials for those in Australia who don't do enough to combat this. Um, 
what I was getting at before is if you really believe this, if you're one of these activists, if you're a true believer in climate change, would you maybe think that by trying to make the fires worse, the point would be stronger and therefore climate change would be combated to your satisfaction? Is it possible that any of this could be eco-terrorism in a sense? Can't prove it. Not saying anyone's... But I, I don't know. I don't know why 180 people are lighting fires when there are fires raging out of control of their own home country. Unless there's some ideological reason behind at least some of it. They're, they all just Australia just happens to have a whole slew of people who are obsessed with starting fires, you know, have some psychological disorder where they want to start fires. Or maybe there's some other psychological disorder, climate change hysteria that is somehow involved in this. Just putting it out there, folks. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. When President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to yes. be a Supreme Court justice, yes. he had a year as a sitting president. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when Mitch McConnell just said, sorry, he's not getting a hearing, uh, we're not even going to meet with him. Yeah. The Constitution says the president will nominate. That's right. And the Senate will then offer its advice and consent. Yeah. And you really want it in a confirmation. Mm -hmm. We never wrote it with the assumption that, oh, you've got to say within 30 days and then someone's got to come that in. That was unconstitutional. Because the yeah. assumption yeah, was second. we would work together. Yeah. Uh, Senator, let's say this happens again. Let's say somebody on the Supreme Court has, retires or, God forbid, dies or anything. Uh, can we say the same thing? You know, I don't think that's the approach well, we should be using here. Well, listen, we need to reestablish. I know, so the way he did it was unconstitutional. Yeah. And now we're just going to follow the law and get another conservative on the, on, the, on the court? Well, I don't think that's where we are. And look, I understand there's a difference if this happens in the last hour and a half of someone's presidency, that there are practical considerations. But President Obama was in the, he had a full year yes. as president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And the notion that somehow a majority leader who was just willing to roll the dice that maybe he get somebody from his party in yeah. on the Supreme Court, that he was willing just to violate every principle of how that constitution well, is. What is she talking about? Violate every principle how? The Senate, they had the votes. They didn't want to do it. They didn't do it. That's it. That, that's This is the system. This is a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about, whether it's on the impeachment issue or anything else. You know, the Democrats, the, the system is, is sacrosanct and cannot be touched unless the system doesn't give them what they want, and then it can be torn down at a moment's notice and completely remade in their image. And that's what happened here with the Merrick Garland thing. Yeah, we're going into an election year. I'm not going to give someone a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court when, you know, the people get to speak about who gets to make that appointment in the next election. You know, they can say there, there is no, or so, oh, the, the, the president will, the president will appoint and the, and the Senate will advise and consent. Uh, you know, yeah, it doesn't say what the timeline is. Oh, people will say, but Buck, why are you complaining about Nancy Pelosi and the not transmitting? I'm saying Nancy Pelosi doesn't have to transmit them. But Nancy Pelosi was the one who was saying that there was an urgency to do this in order to get it done. And now that she realized that 
didn't really work the way they thought it would. People didn't come over to their side. Now there's no urgency anymore. Mitch McConnell wasn't saying, oh, yeah, 100%, we have to have a uh, Obama appointee have an up or down vote this year for the Supreme Court. And then Merrick Garland gets there goes, oh, no, I'm just kidding. We weren't. No. But, I mean, Democrats, whenever they speak of principle, I kind of want to laugh. I'm not even sure they know what principles are. I'm not even sure they know the definition of the word, or perhaps they think that they can, whenever they like, change the definition of the word. I, maybe that's a, a better way of, of thinking about it. Um, you know, they're, they're still so burned about Merrick Garland. You know, they're also, there's such a, an emotional investment that libs have in the Supreme Court. It's because much of what, what, much of what has become uh, greatly internalized about the uh, about liberalism today, about leftists today, uh, has to do with with victories handed to them by the narrowest of of uh, majorities on the Supreme Court, and they don't want to they don't want to deal with the possibility of you know the the psychic damage, the emotional baggage that they would have to handle if all of a sudden the Supreme Court that had given them this, technically speaking, dispensation for whatever it is they want, whether it's you know being whether it's for abortion or for any number of things, that that could switch. And then all of a sudden they'd have to live in a world where, no, not there isn't some authoritative body that says you get to do this however you want or you get it your way on this issue. They don't want to have to face that. They don't want to have to deal with that. But they're still so burned about the Merrick Garland thing. And that was a part of the, uh, the rage, I think, that they had also on an unfairly and, uh, and dishonorably, but but directed at Brett Kavanaugh too. Um, that you know they've they've convinced themselves that was stolen from them. It wasn't Mer- it was never Merrick Garland's seat. Merrick Garland was never on. You know that it didn't happen. And you know Obama said elections have consequences. That includes Senate elections. And give Mitch McConnell. I I know I keep saying got to give cocaine Mitch credit. He has put so many fantastic judges through. He's got this machinery of judicial confirmation just rolling along here. And, you know, Harry Reid opened the door and Mitch McConnell kicked it down and walked right through it. Um, because he says, all right, you guys are going to play rough. We're going to play rough, too. And and God bless him for it. And it, it was a gamble. Remember, we thought that maybe they're going to, you know, Hillary was going to win. They give us some Ruth Bader Ginsburg clone. But nope. Nope. Instead. We get Kavanaugh. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I got some news here for producer Mark. He is not yet aware of. But producer Mark, I will have you know that according to a recent survey, because you you are a clean shaven fellow. Yes. Right? And Unless I, I'm, I'm lazy. But, I have no. joined the ranks of the bearded which I even got a shout-out from Senator Ted Cruz himself where he said he was happy to see that I had joined the bearded fam. But uh, you are a clean-shaven fellow. There's a recent study that says that 75% of male respondents to this survey feel more confident with facial hair, beards in particular. What do we think? What, well, what you would are it take, confident men. What would it take to, to get producer Mark to cross this threshold and join the bearded ranks. Better genetics. You can't beard? I can't grow a beard. No way, come on. This is like a week since I've last shaved and you can barely see anything. Ah. Yeah. I mean, I don't grow a particularly like thick, bushy beard. You but don't, just, but it's at least noticeable. It's a beard, yeah. yeah. If Some I keep people, growing this out, it'll look ridiculous. 
Yeah, some people um, are just very are very blessed to have. You know, I don't. But see, I don't understand. I, I get so I get so much. I have too much hair up top. Yes. I don't understand why it's not. You know, I got to get more down here. You know, I got to sure. do like a like the the reverse of what people. I mean, isn't do. that a good thing though? You don't have to trim constantly. Like, do you even trim that at all? You know, like once a week. Exactly. Yeah, once a week. So, but people, we we've entered an era here of the bearded men in America because beards have there's it's just exploded in popularity. I didn't really think about it. I just kind of like woke up and stopped shaving for a while. Um, probably when a previous romantic relationship had ended about a year or so ago. So, uh, you know, that I think, you know, was a, a beard that just kind of happened. Mm. But, you know, when you look back at old at photos of, of America, different periods in history, there are phases where pretty much everybody has a mustache and then everybody has a beard. And, you know, you, it really is it is like a fashion driven thing. It's funny. I mean, if you go to uh, some country in the Middle East, for example, they, everybody will have the same kind of mustache. Like all the guys have a mustache. In some other places, they have a beard. Turkey, Syria, a lot of mustaches in those places. Everyone Which has is mustaches. What America had in what in the nineties? Um, no, that was kind of like a that was kind of like a hipster stash. Like that's a different thing. I'm talking about like the the Ataturk, you know, the like hey, like uh, I got yes. a, you know, um, and, and then you go through different different places, different phases. You know, mutton chops. Somebody gets the really thick mutton chops, you tend to think of, I don't know if that's like a roughly, you know, 1870s, 1880s. You, know, you look at old time, old timey boxers, you know, and those those prints people see. Yes. They'll have the sort of the waxed mustache. You know, there's there's really somebody should do a history of American facial hair is what I'm getting. At I'm here. sure somebody has done that before. That's probably true. Yeah. Well, it would take a quick Google search and we would find it. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, there's you know, it feels like at the time of the founding. You didn't really have a lot of facial hair. You think about all the all the American, you know, Franklin, Washington, Hamilton, clean-shaven guys, yeah. but they wore those powdered wigs, which when you think about that, that's a bizarre. I know it's we took it from the Brits or whatever, but it's bizarre for them. That's a weird. Did they have hair under those? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, but they just wore these. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of George Washington. They wore these powdered wigs. It's weird. It's a very weird deal. Yeah, I'm glad that stopped. And also the the breeches with the socks back in the in the Mm. colonial times that that doesn't look like it's super comfortable. They just had odd clothing back then. Yeah, Yeah, I I told a I told a friend of mine recently, a lady friend who's uh, into fashion. I said, you know, I'm gonna say this right now: super high waisted jeans, like jeans above the belly button. I don't care if it's fashionable. No. I I'm thought not, that was fashionable for females, not males. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, but, I'm, huh. but even for females, like no, too high, too high. It's the I mean, Jerry Nad- It's the Jerry Nadler of jeans. That's true. It doesn't need to happen. I just, I, I got to. Why do you the- care what females wear? Like, why do I care what females wear? Do you, do you know me? I mean, Come that's on. a fair point. But like, yeah. you know, like if your girlfriend, you not that you have one, is wearing high waisted jeans, you're gonna tell her stop. Like. Why? Who cares? Yeah, be like, get some normal jeans. Does it really bother you that much? I mean, I'm just trying to be helpful. You know, right. I'm trying to be a little bit of a style coach here. Like, I just look at that stuff. I'm like, I don't care. You know what else is? You know what else is? Make, I know this is very fashionable right now for the for the the hip the hip fashionable ladies is uh, wearing like kind of like fedora hats. If you're a, if you're a woman, I'm yeah. seeing a lot more of this. I'm seeing that from males too. No, it's not. It's not a good look. One I'm of my friends. I know it's group- fashionable now, but it's not. It's just not yeah. a good look. It's kind of like gaucho pants. Remember those things that women wore for a while, which like the super like baggy, almost like MC Hammer pants, yes. but cut off at the calves. Nobody looks good in those. That was never a good idea. It was a trend. It was a trend. Yeah, it was a bad one. Um, one of my groomsmen's wearing a fedora a lot, like in in social settings, because he's going bald. 
But that's a little, you know, you got you know. to give some leeway for people that want to, sure. you know. Yeah, I get that. But I'm saying there are a lot of ladies you'll see now, and they're walking around with, we want to see your hair. We don't want to see, we don't want to see a hat. I'm just saying. This is like indoor hats. I'm not talking yeah. about outdoor when your head is cold. That's different. Indoor hats, no. I'm wearing a hat right now. For ladies, I don't care what you wear. No. You wear whatever you want. You're producer Mark. I don't care what anyone wears. Whatever you're comfortable with. I, I think people, people like Bucks, keep it, keep it away yeah. from the fashion commentary. Exactly. Uh, I did. I, somebody accused me of wearing four buttons down yesterday on Outnumbered. It's only three. And the, no one wears. Can you imagine if I wear? Yeah, that's there? a lot of buttons down. Even three. Yeah, yeah, no, but like, could you imagine if I did the? You know, you, you sit there and you do the. Oh no, you never go full the, button. The top button only. No. You know who? You know who used to do top button? Top button only. My my old boss, uh, Glenn Beck, loved. Mm. To Without go a tie. Top. Yes. Oh, that's he loved that's to do like pop. work shirt, no tie, which to me is I don't you know I don't know what I don't know. Looks like uh, I go whenever I have to wear an actual shirt. I go. Two buttons usually. Top button open and the first one open. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Wait, so that's what I. That's uh, when no, I, you had. You were, went to third button. No, You're no, like I didn't go third. No, no, it was double button. It was no, not no, third. No, no, button. you had a third button just now. No, no oh, yeah, we just have now. You on camera. All right, all right. Yeah, no, yesterday on number. I was accused of going third button, not fourth. Oh, okay. Fourth button is like that's X-rated. That gets crazy. I can't believe you did that on television. Three buttons. Yeah, three buttons on TV. If you had a little more chest hair, it would have been noticeable. Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's like I'm just not a prickly hairy guy. You know, I don't yeah. have hair on the face. I'm hair on the chest. It, it is you have what hair it is, on your head at least. It all, it all went up top. What can I tell you? Yeah. It all migrated to the dome. And with that, roll call. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for roll call. Roll call everybody in the house. House. Let's see what we got here. Show kind of flew by today, I gotta say. I always love, you know, producer Mark, when people ask me, they're always like, when I tell them to do a three hour radio show, they're like, they're like, how many, how many uh, guests do you have on? And I'm always like, basically none. Yeah. And then they're always like, how much of it is written for you beforehand? And I'm like, zero. Yeah. And then they're like, well, how do you, I said, how many calls do you take to it? I'm like, we don't really take, we do roll call. We don't really take yeah. on, we don't take phone calls. That's like yesterday somebody didn't like one of my tweets, some lib, so he tweeted out to all of his followers, this is this guy's phone number for his show, flood the calls with like F-bombs and stuff, whatever, and I was like, ha ha, uh, joke's on you. They're, they're have have fun sitting on the, yeah, have fun calling the, uh, it's going to ring a lot, I can tell you that. Um, and by the way, that's not a uh, poor producing that we don't have a lot of guests, you just never ask for any. Yeah, correct, right, yeah. I just, I, I, I want to talk. A lot of people to... say, oh, producer Mark, do your job, get some guests. Yeah, no, no, you don't I, want any. Other, if you want to, there are other shows, they always tweet out, oh, we got a great lineup of like eight different guests on radio i'm like are you, why you listen to the host he talks to you about the things if you want to listen to all these different guests that's that's what let I me mean, turn on any cable news program it's just host guests host guests like that's what it is and 75 percent of conservative people have a podcast now so in yeah. media yeah so what do we need them on yeah exactly if you want They're to hear that listen listen to their podcast with hundreds of listeners with maybe. muppets um so, and but producer Mark is my, you know, he's he's our he's our daily guest. Producer Mark is the voice. He's the Vox Populi. He's the voice of team, of team Buck. So, important things. All right, uh, let's get to roll call, which I know is the segment we're doing, and I should probably get really into that. Glenn writes, we need a list of everyone on that airplane to determine if anyone would benefit from their death. Maybe the airplane was the target, and the missiles were a distraction. Glenn, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there right now, man. I don't, I don't have anything for you other than just, uh, you know, yeah. We don't know yet. We just, we just, I just don't know. We don't know. I'm not an 
aviation disaster expert. Um, it's it, as I said, it is certainly suspicious. Ciara writes, I am writing this on behalf of uh, Russia TV, which is broadcast internationally. I'm a producer. We want to have you on. Thank you so much, Ciara. Uh, Ciara, sorry, I didn't mean to read a media request on air, but that just kind of happened. Um, I do not do Russia TV. <laughs> I don't do it now. I didn't do it then. I've never done it. Uh, but thank you very much for the uh, for the request. Um, here we go. Joanne writes, a word of encouragement. I'm looking at my phone every day around three awaiting your podcast release. You're so good at explaining the unexplainable. I'm a 74-year-old grandmother, and I learn from you every day. Thanks for being there for us to try to get at least one new listener per week. Love the show. Well, Joanne, we love you. That is so kind of you. Thank you. Uh, I'm really humbled and, and super pleased that you anticipate the show every day going up on podcast at 3 Eastern. And uh, please, if you haven't already, check us out on Pluto TV, channel 240, uh, 248, the first. I got it right, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just making sure. I, I'm really paranoid. I want to upset our, our partners over at uh, Pluto TV. Um, but yeah, thank, and telling people about the show is a huge help, and it, it makes us grow our numbers, which is going to keep the Freedom Hut uh, employed, hopefully far, far into the future, um, if you keep doing that. So thank you very much. It means a lot. Uh, Brad writes, why are you talking about what's going on in Virginia right now? Um Brad, I, I mean, yesterday I talked about it at length. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. This you, And you sent this last night, so I don't know why why you would think that uh, I wasn't talking about it. Maybe listen to the podcast, my man. I talked about what's going on in the states and Democrats and all the things that they're doing. Um, Kristen writes, hey, Buck, original Saturday squad, OSS here. My husband and I are both regular followers and appreciate your analysis and well-placed sarcasm as well as your sense of humor. After eight years, you feel like a friend we just haven't yet met face-to-face. Well, Kristen, I feel the same way about people who have been with me here for years on listening to the show. A quick point of interest and a serious question. When I recently asked my teenage son uh, about his only wearing socks with Birkenstocks, I was informed it's currently the only acceptable way to wear them. Wow, a fashion call-out here on the show after we just talked about some stuff like this before. So there's that. I I didn't know that. Apparently Birkenstocks and socks are back in fashion. On a serious note, I've read a couple of articles on Fox News in recent days about reactions to the Soleimani airstrike in Syria. Uh, could you please explain how this affects Syria and possible repercussions to the U.S. Um, and the Russian-backed versus Iranian-backed factions there? Thanks for all you do, Kristen. Uh, Kristen, I think that's going to have to require more of a Syria deep dive into into the different factions that are there and what's going on in that country right now. Um, so... I will have to put a pin in that for a moment, but... Oh, someone pointed this out. We didn't play this before. I got to... Here we go. John writes, Buck, Rush mentioned you in his morning show in the opening monologue. Great job. Team Buck has your back. Here, producer Mark, play it. Wait, you don't have it? Wait, what did we have the Rush? Hold on. He's, all right, he's going he's gonna to play it. Groucho Mark over here, you know, getting all mad at me because I'm just trying to trying to give the audience... I try to give Team Buck what they want when they want it, you know? I, I, I'm the one who delivers. You know, it's like... We got like, like, you know, the parents are a good cop, bad cop. Team Buck, I always want to make you happy. Producer Mark is the one who tells you sometimes no Oreos before bed. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. 
Do we do we have this one? Yeah, the media going wall-to-wall coverage of the funeral. We're getting to see all of the supposed mourners. Now, Buck Sexton, CIA analyst, former guest host of this program, was just on Fox, and he said what I told you yesterday. The regime goes door to door to ask you if you are going to the funeral. And if you say no, they leave your head in the house and take your body to the funeral. Always nice to get a shout out from the big guy, the, the, man, the man himself, the, uh, the, the godfather of this whole, this whole medium, this whole business, this whole industry of talk radio, Mr. Rush Limbaugh, the guy, the one and only. So that was nice on the EIB yesterday. It's always always cool. Appreciate the shout out from Rush. That was from when I was on Outnumbered yesterday, which I'm sure you can uh, probably, if you want, I mean, you know. Well, actually, it'd be fun to go back for some of you, I think, and watch it because everything that I said was, even now in retrospect, even more wise and astute than it sounded at the time. Now that we know more of what's going on in the Mideast. So there's that. Uh, let's see here. Meg writes, Buck, are you on TV tonight? Need info. Not these random talking heads. Well, Meg, I wasn't on TV last night. I was on during the day, during Outnumbered, but um, yeah, I didn't get on any of the shows of uh, nighttime shows to talk about this stuff, which is which is the deal, um, unfortunately, but it is what it is. Uh, let's see here. Eric, hey, Buck, love your show. It's my favorite way for people to start emails into me love your show in regards to the recent iran situation let's play devil's advocate what's the difference from iran's proxy militants and the u.s providing weapons to militant groups to kill and overthrow governments outside of u.s borders um well eric it all depends on uh you know uh it all depends on the situation i mean you're giving me a no specific here u.s providing weapons to militant groups to kill and overthrow governments outside the u.s borders who are we talking about here? Uh, and this is where you, at some point you get into, you know, America is good and other places are bad. <laughs> I mean, that's just something that's true. Um, but I, I need more than just the the vague, you know, if the in, you know if the international community all agrees that, for example, a a group is a terrorist group and you're arming that terrorist group, um, that's a problem, I would think. Mm. And also, some things are just right, even if. It's not it's not a function of international law or not. Uh, Mike writes, Buck, glad you're back. And producer Mark is back in the Freedom Hut. I hope you had a good Christmas and birthday. Anyway, just suggesting a guest to have on the show, Patrick Moore, the ex-Greenpeace guy that left the Green Movement when he saw how corrupt and fraudulent it was becoming. He has a lot of insight and common sense when it comes to the climate hysteria. So his voice would be a breath of fresh air on this issue that's gotten totally out of hand. Who knows if you've been to a radio view, but it might be worth a shot. Shields high. Well, Mike, maybe. I mean, once we get our a little more of our tech set up in here, we'll be able to take guests on video. And that then means that we can also have them on Pluto TV. You'll be able to see the guests. And when that is happening, um, there will be good things. Um, also, when we have our YouTube channel up and running, which is just taking a little bit of time on my end. Don't blame producer Mark. This is my fault. Um, although he is the one that tells you no cookies before bed. As in, like, Buck can't just, like play clips that don't exist yet in our system he's the one that gets to present you with that yeah exactly that's my fault yeah i get to i get to just pull the fantasy you know clips and say hey play that speech we have of churchill from whatever and he's like we don't have it play this clip from six months ago yeah yeah it'll just appear out of thin air see no oreos before bed kids this is this is what this is his job i'm on a diet after all um how's it going by the way terrible i'm so hungry i'm hungry all dude i'm hungry and i'm not even on it i'm basically only eating 
Drinking two protein shakes, shakes a day and one meal a day. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not good. I hear you. Well, team, that's going to be the show for today. We'll have more for you tomorrow as we always do. Thank you so much for being here. Spread the word, pass the buck, and of course, Shields High.